If you will look with me at Colossians chapter 3. Verse 12, and remember who we are this morning as Christians, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So here we are this morning as God's chosen ones, God's holy ones, God's beloved ones. And we have heard from Paul in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, what we're supposed to put on, how we're supposed to uh, spiritually get dressed as Christians. And now we're given some rules to live by. Because everybody likes rules. In chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul, inspired by God, is giving us rules as Christians to live by and saying this is really practical, really specific in these different relationships. This is how you are as a Christian supposed to live. And like all rules in the Bible, like every single rule in the Bible, it is for God's glory and it's for your good. Always. Never arbitrary. God's rules are always going to lead to, if followed, God being glorified and your good. God's pleasure and your joy. So we'll read this morning about these rules. Understand what these rules are and what they are not, Lord willing. But before I preach this sermon, let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for this time that You have set apart today for us to read Your Word together and to hear from You. We hope and trust that our singing and praying has been a blessing to You today. We hope it is. And we want to hear from You now through Your Word. So would You speak to us through Your Holy Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You could divide the text that we're looking at today in two sections, verses 18 through 21 is a close look at our homes, and then verses 22 through verse 1 of chapter 4 is a close look we're going to apply today in our work, in the work that God has given us to do. And I'll explain why we're going to apply it that way once we get there. But these first verses, 18 through 21, takes a close look at the Christian home. And so it's going to give us the opportunity to evaluate who we are behind closed doors. So who are we and who are you? Think about this. Who are you behind the walls of your home? And is who you are behind the walls of your home different than who you are outside the walls of your home? Now, some, some of this already might start to bring conviction as you see a duplicity in your life. You see that you're sort of one person here and you're another person there. You'd be horrified if somebody saw who you were behind the walls of your home or what you do behind the walls of your home or maybe how you treat your family or how you treat your spouse or how you speak to people and and, and, and what your motivations are and, and the things you say and think and, and do, you'd be really frightened. right? If you found out that there had been cameras installed in your home, I mean, not just fright, you'd probably be upset and there'd be some litigation. And, but there's cameras in your home. And this morning, we just, we just start watching. We flip the projector on. And up on the screen, there you are. And it's your turn this week. You never know whose turn it's going to be. You come every week just because of the sheer joy of it being somebody else. So it's worth the risk of it being you. You want to see. But, but this week, it's you. And there it is, Monday morning. And it just starts reeling. And we've taken the time to just put the highlights together. And some are great, some are bad. But how many things would you be ashamed of? 
And, and how, how much less careful are you behind the walls of your home than you are outside those walls? So, I'm careful out here because of my reputation and concerned about what people think of me. But so often in our home, where for many of us, our reputations have already been blown. I mean, these people know the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's no trying to project anything for those behind those walls anymore. It's just silly. And so often, we're less careful with those behind those walls. So these are the rules that that Paul lays out. There's really not a lot of them. There's not a lot of them, but let's see from Paul here. What, What do we find... What should we find in the Christian home? He's going to talk about finding their sweet and yielding wives and loving husbands and obedient children and kind moms and dads. That's basically it. That's what you should find in the Christian home. Verse 18. Wives. Now you see, every, everybody gets sort of nailed today. It's just a list. He's just going to run through it. Wives, okay. Now husbands, okay. Kids are happy. Now kids, okay. Parents and fathers, okay. Employees, employers. He's just, he's just going to go through and say, this is how you should be characterized. So, uh, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. We could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and we could read verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2 and we would read there that the wife is supposed to be to her husband a helper suitable. A suitable helper. A wife helps her husband. And that is exactly what is being described here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, and in 1 Peter 3, and Ephesians 5, and elsewhere in the Bible. This is what is to characterize a Christian wife. And the primary way that she is helpful to her husband, brought up over and over again, is that she is willing to submit to her husband. Now the call to a wife to submit to her husband does not, here's a couple does nots that we should say. Because this can get a really bad rap. The call for a wife to submit to her husband does not indicate the husband's superiority and the wife's inferiority. It's not some sort of statement that's saying that. The ground of a wife submitting to her husband is never ever in the Bible well because he is superior to you and you are inferior to him. That would be an unbiblical conclusion to draw. But a lot of people find that idea of a wife submitting to her husband offensive. And they find it offensive because it feels, right? It feels like he must be superior and she must be inferior Because that's what submission necessarily entails. But the Bible doesn't say that. Never ever says that. Indicates that. Hints at that. Actually the opposite. Galatians 3 talks about this. There's neither male nor female. Men and women, both image bearers of God. Created in the image of God. As far as their identity is concerned. Complete equals Equal in worth. Equal in value. So, a wife being called to submit to her husband is not being called to submit to her husband because he is superior and she is inferior. That is not what biblical submission of a wife is. It also does not mean that a wife should just go along with sin or put up passively with abuse or mistreatment. So please don't hear us say that. Especially if you're visiting. Or maybe if you're visiting and you haven't read the Bible much or heard much Christian teaching, and just the reading of verse 18 is offensive to you. There'd be many 
places where I just me reading verse 18 would probably get some... <gasps> so it does not mean when God says a wife should submit to her husband, that does not mean that she is just to go along with sin, for example. It does not mean that she should just passively, passively put up with abuse or mistreatment. And well, it doesn't really matter. Just you need to submit to Him. Remember, so whatever He says, that goes. Even if it's sinful, that goes. And you just need to go along with it. And if He's abusing you, well, he, He's superior to you. You belong to Him. You need to submit to Him. If He's mistreating you, well, I'm sorry. Pray for Him. But that's really all you can do. You need to just passively put up with it. That is not what the biblical submission of a wife to her husband is. And it does not mean silence. It does not mean silence. This does not mean this verse coupled with the, this beauty of a, of a Christian woman. She has a gentle and quiet spirit that does not mean that she is silent. In fact, husbands would miss out on a lot of help from their wives if they were silent. So we're so glad that you're not silent. So it does not mean silence, right? My way or the highway, you know, this is what we're doing and I don't want to hear any more about it. Silence, woman. I don't do that. I don't even think that. I don't even make that joke. <laughs> it does not mean silence. It does mean, right? Because that's great. So it doesn't mean a bunch of stuff. Does it mean anything? It does. It does mean that she willingly and joyfully advocates, receives, and nurtures strength and leadership from her husband. Okay, it means at least that. Okay, when a wife is called to submit to her husband, that does mean that she willingly and joyfully advocates strength and leadership from him. She's for it, she receives strength and leadership from Him, responds to it, and she nurtures it. She actually wants Him to grow in this. She wants to help Him become a more godly leader in their family. So she nurtures it. She advocates it. And she receives it. And is that strength and leadership perfect strength and leadership? It is not perfect strength and leadership. It is imperfect strength and leadership. And yet, she advocates it and receives it and wants to nurture it. This is what a submissive wife who loves the Lord is seeking to do in her home. Does it mean that she only advocates and nurtures and receives that strength and leadership if it is exactly the way she wants things done and it's said the way she wants to hear it and it looks the way she wants it to look? No, that's not, that's not it. That's not it. It's this imperfect leadership of a husband. She wants that to flourish. So she receives that leadership, advocates that leadership, nurtures that leadership. It glorifies God because it will be essential for Christ to rule in her heart in order for her to do this. See? So when a wife submits to her husband, when she draws alongside Him and she helps Him in this way and she advocates strength and leadership in Him and she receives that leadership and she nurtures that leadership. Understand, that is not saying something great about the husband. It is saying something great about God. And God actually, this is tough I know, but God actually gets more glory when he's a lousier husband. Here's what we mean by that. Because 
If he is, if I could use that word, I assume we all know what we mean. Okay? I'm not meaning abusive or mistreating. Again, so I've already laid those disclaimers. But if he's just being as I am often, just a lousy husband, just not really leading well and loving well. We're going to get to him next, right? Just not really doing that well. And she still encourages and nurtures and receives and advocates leadership in him and from him in, despite his you know, temporary lousiness. In order for her to do that, God must be really great and really good to her, and really enough, and really all of her joy, and really meeting everything that she needs if she's going to be able to do that. So God is glorified in that. God is glorified in that. Because it is essential. If a wife is going to do this and submit to her husband in this way, an imperfect husband, it is essential that Christ rule in her heart. You can't do this otherwise. Now what has, what has Paul just told her and him, but what has he told her to just to put on? Right? Christ. 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 Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, deeply. Why? So that you can do this. So that you can do this. And when she does this, it is Fitting in the Lord. This fits. This is what you should find in a Christian wife. It's very in place. Ephesians 5.22-24 Paul says it differently, but the same idea there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So wives should submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So, could look at it this way. Wives are told to do one thing here. Husbands are told to do two things. A positive and a negative. A positive and a negative. Do this, or don't do this. And Derek Thomas says about this verse that Paul here goes for the jugular of male chauvinism. He goes for the jugular of male chauvinism. So, verse 18 can't be abused or misused by a husband, right? You see? Because husbands want to quote certain verses at certain times in their marriage. It's like wives, I'm sure, want to quote certain verses at certain times in their marriage. Right? You just want it to, you're having a discussion, you're having uh, a discussion. Right? You're having a discussion, and uh, you want the discussion to come to an end, and you may think in your early years of marriage that it is wise to just kind of, you know, come in as the closer. And the pitch you throw is the verse. And you read a verse and you think, well, this is going to solve everything. She has just momentarily forgotten God's Word. And I will remind her of God's Word. And then this will all go away. Honey, this is very simple. You are to submit to your husbands. Now, wives, that's you, sweetheart. That's you. And husbands is me. So, let's just insert the names, okay? Kristen, submit to Eric. This is really simple. But it's easy to forget, I know. But I love you and I want to pastor you through this, so let's meditate on this verse. Now if he tries to use that, right, to, to just get his way, or worst case scenario, to be abusive and to mistreat her, well, he's not reading the very next verse because the very next verse, Paul goes for the jugular of that kind of misuse of Scripture. Because a husband can't misuse verse 18 and love his wife and not be harsh with her at the same time. Right? He can't do that. God also never calls husbands to make sure your wives submit to you. That's never, never a calling for a husband. 
But we want to take the expectations of others and we want to we want to shout about those expectations rather than saying, well, no, what does God expect from me? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. First Peter 3, 7 says, likewise, husbands, put another way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That does not mean inferior. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. We don't have time to go into that verse as much as I would like. And, but it says so much. There was a sense of inequality in this day. In fact, a daughter would not be an heir. The son would be an heir. This was a major thing for Paul to say in this culture. He says that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. It means consider it. Consider your wife. Consider her frame. How do you speak to her? How do you relate to her? You demand that your wife just get thick skin or say things like, well, this is just who I am and that's my personality. That would be the opposite of living with her in an understanding way. In a considerate way. And very frightening. All husbands should be frightened by this because there's actually a threat in this verse. And the threat is, husbands, if you do not live with your wives in an understanding way, you are putting a ceiling on your prayers. That's frightening to think about. So that, he says, do this, your prayers may not be hindered. It's that big of a deal. Husbands, love your wives. This is a command that God gives. It is a command. What if I don't feel love for her? That's not what Paul is talking about. That's not what God is talking about. Paul is not concerned with feelings here. Concerned with action. Action. Husbands, will you love your wives? Will you do everything that that entails and protect them and provide for them and, and meet her needs and shower her with grace and affection and encouragement and Learn and study her so that you understand how she receives love from you. How to best do this. Because you want to, you want to obey God. You want to honor God and glorify Him. Ephesians 5 says you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And specifically, it says that Christ loved the church in this way. He gave Himself up for her. So, Husbands, how are we to love our wives? We're to give ourselves up for them. In little ways and in big ways. In little ways and in big ways. She gets the bigger bowl of ice cream. Kind of a little way. That's kind of a big way actually in our home. It's a big deal. Like This one's definitely heavier. It should be mine. It's the... Right? She, she wants to watch Murder, She Wrote again. And you're like, this show is so old and so corny and so outdated and the acting is so terrible. But you joyfully, you watch Murder, She Wrote. Right? Little things and big things. Big things because you, you love her. And so we need to give ourselves up for our wives. We need to make decisions with her in mind. Consider her. You might appreciate this anecdote I did. Winston Churchill uh, once attended a banquet in London and he was asked this question. Here's Winston Churchill and he's here as a prime minister and he's, he's in this large, uh, fancy banquet with a lot of people and they asked him this question. If you could... This is, this is, this is really good, I think. And wives, you're just gonna, I think you're going to love this. If you could not be who you are, they asked him, uh, who would you like to be? You could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And he was sitting next to his wife, Clemmy, and everyone was eager to hear what he would say. 
And when it came to his turn, he rose and gave the answer. How is this for being quick off your feet? If I could not be who I am, I would most like to be. And here he paused and took hold of his wife's hand, Lady Churchill's second husband. That's, that's quite a statement of love and devotion to his wife. Loved her. So these are, in verse 18 and 19, the reciprocal duties of a husband and wife. Right, you've seen this pattern probably before in Scripture. Right, wives, primarily, God is holding you responsible to submit to your husbands. And husbands, God is holding you primarily responsible to Love your wives. So does your marriage look like this? The question for us to ask. What needs changing in my marriage? And of course, what needs changing in me? What do I need to change? Well, he's still in the home. He moves on to children and parents. So, so still in the home, but verse 20 and 21 Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 is the same thing. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So how does here a child manifest the rule of Christ in their life? Through obeying their parents. Obedience. And isn't it interesting that it says here that this pleases the Lord? So children, or young people here today, when you obey your parents, when you obey your mom and your dad, that brings pleasure to God. It pleases God. It makes God smile. How important is obeying your parents? Let me read you a few verses from Romans chapter 1. Verses 28 through 31. You might be surprised at the list of sins that disobeying your parents falls in the middle of. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What a list they have in the middle disobeying your parents. It's a really big deal. And it's a really serious matter when children do not obey their parents. And parents must impress this on their children. Children understand what a big deal this is. That you obey mom and dad, you must obey mom and dad. But the primary reason that you must obey mom and dad, we have to say this a lot in our home, is not because there is something special about mom or dad, not necessarily because dad even deserves your obedience or mom deserves or has earned your obedience, but it's much more serious than that. You need to obey mom and dad because God calls you to obey mom and dad. And it pleases the Lord when you do this. And it displeases Him when you do not. Son, do you want to please God? There's a real serious tone. The children, obey your parents and everything for this. Pleases the Lord. And then to fathers, He doesn't give an admonition to mothers. I don't know why. And he doesn't give this admonition to fathers and mothers. So there must be, this is my only way of answering that, there must be a propensity in men. It is certainly my experience. It must be a propensity in men who are given authority as heads of their homes to be harsh with their wives or with their children. To sort of lord that authority over them and to get very angry when they're not respected or when they're not obeyed. 
and be more concerned with themselves being disrespected than pitying their child who is not right with the Lord in those moments. But we take the personal offense. That's for me. That's where I feel the blood start to boil. It's pride and disrespecting me. And my thoughts aren't right in those moments. If my son or daughter is disobedient, I should not be primarily concerned with the personal offense that that is. My primary feeling toward them should be one of pity. Because they're out of bounds in their relationship with God right now. That's a dangerous place to be. And I need to be a minister of reconciliation at that point. Whatever I do, I need to help them back to the Lord and obedience. But we may be tempted, dads. So fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And if you were to flip back to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says almost the same thing there. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, so in one verse here in Colossians and then Ephesians, same things. Do not provoke your children, fathers. And there are two things he said that you can provoke your children to. In Colossians, he says it's discouragement. And Ephesians chapter 6, it's anger. What this means is that dads, if, if you are too hard on your children, and if there is a sharp edge on you with your kids, one of two things is going to happen in your kids. They're either going to grow angry or they're going to grow discouraged. Have you found that to be true? Have you ever blown it with your kids and you've seen them either become a, a puddle of tears, discouraged, or maybe some of your more strong-willed children push right back? You've seen anger in them. And dads especially need to take a step back and instead of getting angry about the anger, perhaps, from the kid, I need to say, what have I done to provoke this? Maybe dad needs to be disciplined. Sometimes that's the case. So dads, we've got to be careful. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So a word in these verses for husbands and fathers. What will you do with the authority that God has given you Husbands and fathers, what will you do with your frustrations, with your weaknesses, with your failures? Will you take them out on your family? You will be tempted to do so. You will be tempted to do so. And if you do, you will be harsh with your wife. And he says, don't do that. Love your wife. And if you do that with your kids, you're going to provoke them to discouragement or anger. And long-term estrangement with your wife and with your children. And there are many hands, I wouldn't ask for them to be raised, hands could be raised today of adults who would say that today I am estranged from my father, basically, because this is exactly what he did. And there was no connection. And there was no relationship. And there was a sharp edge. And there was coolness. And there was distance. And there was anger. So we've got to be very careful. So that's the home. Heavy hitting words about the Christian home, and now he moves outside the walls of the home. So let me say a few things about these verses. These verses that have caused a lot of difficulty and problems for people. If you have the English Standard Version, you have the word slaves, and later the word masters. Some of your translations may have the word bond servants. But this passage and others that talk about slaves and masters in your Bible, in your New Testament, this passage and others which seek to regulate Greco-Roman slavery without explicitly calling for its abolition 
have been difficult for modern readers especially. Right? You get that problem. So what's with the regulating of this wrong, wicked institution? Why are we regulating it? Why aren't we calling for the abolition of this wicked institution, we might think? So let me just say a couple of things briefly. Just a couple of things. First of all, the slavery that existed in this first century context was nothing like the institution of slavery that existed in our country, for example, and other places. So, we especially have appropriate, I'm guessing many of us, appropriate reactions to words like slaves and masters because of history that is very close to us, closer to some of us, more close to some of you than others. As slaves and masters, we think of something very specific. Well, that's not, that's not what was taking place in the first century here. Not saying that it was right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the slavery that existed in the first century was right, but it wasn't as bad be careful even saying that, but it wasn't as bad as much of the slavery that was practiced here, for example, in this country. Very different. And secondly, hopefully this will be helpful, the fact that Scripture does not explicitly call for the abolition of slavery does not equal an endorsement of slavery. Because there are other things in the New Testament that displease God, that Scripture regulates rather than just calling flat out for the abolition and destruction of. So it doesn't mean that it's an endorsement. The principles of the Christian life which are explicitly made when lived out make certain forms of slavery an impossibility for the Christian. That's the truth. Certain forms of slavery. And I'm talking about this kind of slavery. Certainly the kind of slavery that we have in this country. There's other forms of slavery that we are all in though. You have a credit card, for example. Or a house payment. or That is a form of slavery. You may not be owned by another, but you owe another. And you are, Proverbs would say, enslaved to that master. But, the principles of the Christian, and I'm not going to give a sermon on debt or anything, but the principles of the Christian life, which are explicitly made, right? What it means to be a Christian. So, what I'm saying, what Scripture is saying is if you live those out and you follow the explicit commands of what it means to be a Christian, owning a person will not be possible. That's. So, we. The Bible doesn't go after every wrong institution and every wrong system. It's not a document like that. It is a transcultural document, right, that speaks to all cultures and gives you principles to apply to all cultures. And if you apply the principles of the Christian life, it would make certainly this kind of slavery, it would make it an impossibility. You can really see this in Paul's heart in the book of Philemon. Where Paul is in fact writing on behalf of a slave who's become a close friend of his, Onesimus, and he's writing to uh, Philemon, Philemon. Uh, so this is what William Wilberforce, of course, understood. The great uh, Christian English abolitionist. He understood Christianity and he understood Scripture and that it was incompatible with slavery. So this institution, though, no longer exists. So is there anything for us to learn? Well, you've got to remember 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So just because that Greco-Roman slavery institution does not exist today doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to apply here. So I think, and many have thought, that's how it's been applied for generations. So I'm not I think, out of 
the bounds of orthodoxy here. Um, this scripture speaks to our workplace. He's speaking about work. And it speaks to the work that we do and the workplace relationship, especially between an employee and an employer. So let me just draw out four principles about work and working that we find in this great text on work. Number one, the Christian should do all his work as if he were doing it for the Lord. Verse 22-24, through Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So, principle number one, the Christian should do all his work as if he were doing it for the Lord. Some have experienced the temptation of working harder when the boss is around. Right? If the boss is gone, or the boss is out of town, it's really interesting. Everybody works a little differently. But when he or she is in the office, wow, there's a lot of things getting done. Trying to impress, to please, and to get a promotion and all kinds of motivations there. But what is Paul saying? He's saying, wait a minute. Whether your boss is in the room or your boss is out of the room, do you understand that whatever work you do, whether you are a, a street sweeper or an attorney, whatever it is that you do, whatever your job is, you're not working for this employer ultimately. You're working for God. You're serving God. And God's always, He's always in the room. He's always watching you work. That's what Paul means when he says, by way of eye service as people pleasers. So we do everything. We do all of our work. No matter what our work is, we do it knowing that we are doing our work for God and not for others. So we're actually free from the fear of man and people pleasing. We don't have to worry about that. We just work hard all the time. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're free from that. We're trying to please God, not impress people. This also means that there are not high jobs and low jobs. It also means that whatever your job is, it's sanctified, it's holy work if you do it for God. So there's not like really special spiritual callings that are better than others. It's all doing your work for the Lord. So it's not like the guy who is a missionary or who is a pastor or the a professor at a Christian university is somehow doing better work than the guy who works at the copy store. If both of them are doing their work for the Lord. In fact, if the, the professor at the Christian institution, right, or, or the pastor or the missionary is, is, is doing their work to please people and not please God, and the guy who's making copies all day is doing it to not impress people but to please God, God is actually glorified in the copy store worker more than the missionary. And the holy work is this work. Not this work. There's not high work and not low work. It's an evening of the playing field. It should bring new meaning to the work that you do. Whatever it is that you do. Whatever it is you do. You ever feel like, well, I'm better than this. and I'm too good for this job. And they're not paying me enough. And if they only knew. and That, that attitude doesn't come from, I'm doing this for God. It comes from me. And looking at myself. Number two. Oh, another good quote. With number one, that's why Martin Luther said that a dairymaid can milk cows to the glory of God. Doesn't matter what you do, to the glory of God. Number two, the Christian should do all his work from the heart. You hear that in these words. The end of verse 22, all right, we 
Don't do our work as people pleasers, but with what? Sincerity of heart. In verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily. So the Christian should do all of his work from the heart. In other words, give yourself fully and completely to the work that you have to do. Work from your heart. Enjoy your work as best you can. Enjoy your work. Whatever God calls you to do, work hard from the heart and enjoy what He's given you. Be thankful. Be thankful for work. There are many who would like to have work to do now, and they don't. They're trying to find work to do, and they can't. So whatever work you have to do, do it well. Do it heartily. And be thankful for the work that you have. Number three, the Christian should realize that his work will be rewarded. Paul says that here. And if you in jobs where you feel like you're not getting rewarded the way that you should be, not getting paid enough, I'm worth more than this. There was a day I wouldn't get out of bed for less than $30 an hour. Right? These kinds of thoughts. Well, then the mindset's off there. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Do you see what he's saying? Okay, when you work hard, where is your ultimate paycheck going to come from? The, the reward of your work is not to get the praise here and to get the accolades here and to get the recognition here and to get the money that I think I deserve here. Those aren't necessarily wrong things to desire and go after, but are, are this, is this what is primarily important? And does not having those things um, paralyze you in your ability to work well and heartily for the Lord? It does for many Christians. They wrestle with that. Well, God says, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. I know many of you are working and you're probably not getting paid what you should get paid. And the work that you're doing probably is worth more in our culture relatively than you're receiving. And you may not be getting the recognition that you should be getting for your hard work. I understand those frustrations. And I know those for many of you, those are genuine, real, legitimate frustrations. And I know that can make things very difficult for you or difficult for your family. And but Paul is saying here, you will be paid one day. <laughs> the checks, it's in the mail. It's going to be a while for you, but it is in there. It's in the mail. You're going to have to die to get it. But you will get paid one day. And that should be encouraging to you. You will, you will, the work will be recognized. You will receive the inheritance as your reward. Seriously, you will be rewarded. This is God's remunerative, that word is really hard for me to say, justice. We're very familiar with God's retributive justice, right? You do bad things, you get punished. But do we understand the other side of God's justice? God is a God who rewards the faithful. It will go well for the faithful. And then verse 25, the other side of that justice, retribution, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality that applies to slaves and masters, employees and employers. Wrong is done, that will also be paid back. Sobering words. And then finally, number four. The Christian employer must treat his workers with justice and fairness. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me just boil it down. Christians should be the best employees and Christians should be the best employers. The hardest workers, most grateful workers should be Christians should be that way. And the best people to work for should be Christians. We should want to work for them. Love to work for them. One of the reasons is because they treat others justly. 
and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. It can be a temptation for an employer who's a Christian, who maybe has Christian employees. I've seen this. To actually take advantage of Christian employees. To like pull the Christian card. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad that you're a Christian and you're just so forgiving and patient. I haven't paid you in a couple months. and I just really appreciate that you're a brother in the Lord and can overlook these kinds of things. And that's, that's terrible. That is terrible. That is not treating justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a Master in heaven. Paul could not get more practical than he does. In chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. In conclusion, why all these rules? Why does Paul speak specifically to these different spheres of our life and call us to live in very specific ways? And the answer, of course, is for God's glory and our good This is what we as Christians clothe ourselves with. Wives, submission. Husbands, clothing themselves with love for their wives. Kindness to their children. Children, obedience to their parents. Workers, working for God. Working heartily. Employers, masters, treating others justly and fairly. When this happens, God is glorified and it is for our good. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for the practical instruction that You've given us in Your Word today. And we're thankful for all the great, encouraging, enabling words of truth that came before this instruction. God, may You work in us so that the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. So that Your Word dwells in us richly. So that there is a life that overflows from us that is for Your glory and for the good of others. We pray, Lord, that You would be honored in the rest of our time today as we think on these things as we pray about these things, as we remember Your covenant with us and worship You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.